Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. Hour two of our podcast slash broadcast underway. A shout out to our friends listening on K Talk sixteen forty AM in Salt Lake City. My good friend Suzanne Sherman is on the line with me here, and only for this segment. So we got to make it count, Suzanne. I mean, this is time. Time is uh, slipping away. I understand, no pressure, mind you. <laughs> I understand uh, you, you've got some traveling ahead of you in the near future, and one of the things we wanted to discuss was uh, preparedness for winter travel. Yeah, this is one of my favorite topics, particularly vis-a-vis uh, vehicular preparation. You know, even if you're not going on a long journey, you have to consider when we live in a place like we do where the temperatures can get extreme. We've got major thoroughfares, I-15, 80, 70. There's a story right now where I-70 is closed earlier, um, both directions at the Vail Pass due to crashes because of the inclement weather. If you look at the picture on the article I sent you, there's just snow all over the road. And it's really incumbent for people to understand that even whatever time of year it is, but particularly now with the winter, it is important to have a vehicle that is properly prepared for this kind of extreme temperatures and conditions. So first of all, you want to make sure that you've got proper tires, vehicles in good working order. Assuming all that, what do you have with you in your vehicle when you're driving around? Well, if you're just going to work, those uh, work shoes you have and those work clothes you have, if you get in an accident, have to exit your vehicle, uh, the, in the structural integrity of your vehicle is compromised, that's not going to be enough for you. So you need to think about always having, I like a full tank of gas in the winter. I remember there was a, a massive uh, jam on 80 here at the 8084 interchange in the wintertime. Vehicles were stuck for hours. So if you run out of gas, you can't stay warm. Do you have extra shoes, waterproof shoes with wool socks, extra clothing to keep you warm? What else do you have? Means of signaling for assistance, you know, obviously your cell phone. There's some great little items. I have a few on it that I got from Amazon. They actually look like little hockey pucks and they're signals. And if it's too windy or they get covered in snow, you can certainly put them on your dash or other places where they can be seen. They can be used as flashlights, that sort of thing. Have water. There are some great products you can have that will instantly heat things up for you as well. So just think about what you need to have in your vehicle. Maybe some uh, kitty litter or sand if you get stuck, a shovel, that sort of thing. And again, don't travel in conditions if you're not familiar with driving in these bad, you know, in these kind of situations, the weather. I can tell you it only takes once of, mm-hmm. of not doing what you're, you're advocating here. Um, some people will remember this. Those who lived in southern Idaho, the winter of 92, 93, we had a blizzard. And I mean an honest-to-goodness blizzard that, uh, it, it well, the president declared the state a disaster area, or that part of the state. It was, it was significant. It was 40-mile-an-hour winds and about two straight days of snow. And I was driving to work one morning. I'm off to the radio station thinking, yeah, you know, it's just a snowstorm. We've done this a million times before. I got stuck. And I was uh, probably a good three quarters of a mile away from the radio station, wearing dress shoes, no hat, no gloves, walked into the station. And, you know, long story short, I I got to, to learn a new word. It was called frostbite. 
And mm -hmm. I, I very quickly came to realize, even though I live just a very short distance from the station, it, it can happen. And when it happens, if you're not to prepared to, to continue on foot, you're going to suffer. It just yeah, took once. You know, even if the structural integrity is okay in your vehicle, you might have spun, you might get stuck in a place that's unsafe, and you have to get out so you're not hit by other vehicles. Well, now you're in a survival situation, and in these remote areas where we are, you might need to incorporate some some skills. So, again, have the proper attire on there. I love having a tarp with me if you need to build a mini shelter, um, a way to start a fire. And I, I love, I'm going to give a plug to my good friend, Bobby Lynn, Pure Fire Tactical. It's a magnesium uh, fire starter that you can actually yes. shave off pieces and it has a striker on there. I'm actually going to be auctioning one of those off, but check that out, Pure Fire Tactical. You might not be able to rely on a Bic lighter, something like that. You have to be able to build a fire, stay warm. I like to talk about the family. This was a tragic situation. Kim family, they were driving, I believe, from San Francisco to somewhere in Oregon over Thanksgiving, and they got stuck on a logging road. If you don't have a vehicle in, that is prepared or able to handle uh, off-road, don't go into the wilderness. Don't do that. And they got bogged down in snow. They had an infant and a toddler with them, no supplies. They were stuck there for days. The husband finally left to try to get help. He perished. So there are a few things to think about. Don't travel through an area you're not comfortable surviving in. If something happens to your vehicle, just don't do it. Sometimes you don't have a choice. I'm thinking about a, a train that was stuck also in Oregon in a remote area, and the people were stuck on that for days. So even if you're not going to be in your vehicle, have something that you could use for a few days out of time in a backpack. People can be stuck at airports for hours or days on end. Same thing with this train situation. So always have something that will keep you alive, keep you fed, keep you safe, keep you warm. Oh, I love it. I love it. Now, what about uh, telling people where you're going? You know, that's that's kind of an OPSEC thing. Uh, oh, I see what you're saying about before you travel. Sorry, <laughs> right, I go for right. well, that mind. You know, that's a really good point, because where I live, I can travel. We call it through the basin. And that takes us from where I am in the mountains into Evanston. But for 90 percent of that route, there is no service and it's pretty remote. So what I'll do is I'll say to somebody, if I'm going to go way out in the wilderness or where there's not, I was just in Nine Mile Canyon a month and a half ago. There is no service there. I told my son, if you don't hear from me by seven o'clock, you come find me because that's where I'll be. Have a plan. Have people know where you're going to be, particularly if you're if you're in remote areas. Hey, even if you're stuck on one of these situations out here, people might not be able to get to you right away, but at least they're going to know where you are. Well, and, and I think one of the things that uh, people don't want to think about, if if you're truly stranded and I mean, the temperatures are freezing, that is a life or death situation. Guess what? It's okay to tear apart your car seats and pull the foam out of your car seats and stuff it in your clothing as a means of preserving your body heat. In fact, it's okay to take parts of your car and use it to start a fire. You can replace the yeah. car. You don't, you know, you don't, the car doesn't have to be in pristine shape by the time you're rescued. You just need to survive to be rescued. 
sometimes try and take a floor mat, put it under your tire if you're stuck. Sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. But if it does, it makes a, a really big difference. Have some food and get in there as well. You know, I have these bowls that have these packets that you, you put them under these uh, two, you know, spaces and they will heat up whatever you have. You can boil water. You can carry, I put chunky soup in there because you just pick off the lid. You don't need a can opener throw that in there and you always have some food. Now, the chances are you're probably not going to starve to death in the time that you're there, but wouldn't it be nice and to be comfortable without getting too much into the details. Also, for the ladies that might be listening, I encourage them. Most people think this is a joke and they laugh about it. But if you're stranded in a situation like I'm seeing here, cars everywhere, there's nowhere and you need to make yourself a little more comfortable. If you know what I'm saying, look up a product called the Go Girl. It will allow you to relieve yourself in the comfort and privacy and safety of your vehicle. You laugh now until you really need it. (laughs) I just was going to say something about writing your name in the snow, but that would be inappropriate. So I won't say it. (laughs) So, uh, you got me. <laughs> okay, that's that's all but, I was you know, trying this, to do. It's it's all, it's also a matter of not only you know you can maintain your modesty, but it's also a safety issue. I mean, you don't have to exit your vehicle. You know, we know guys can use the water bottles and all that, but this is a way of you to not have to get out of your vehicle. By the way, when you do fill said water bottles, use them for heat. No shame in that. Just do put the lid back on. <laughs> okay. See, but this is the kind of stuff that people don't think about because they're they absolutely sure it's never going to happen to me. And they're right, right up until the moment that it does. Yep, yep. I was telling a trucker friend of mine, keep some empty water bottles because you know what? Trying to keep that liquid inside of you, your body is working hard to keep that liquid warm. Get rid of it. Use it to keep you warm. And uh, it can help. So. Okay. A little bit getting personal there. Well, but these are these are the kind of things that you'll be glad you thought about ahead of time, yes. you know, before you're yep. stuck in the snow going, okay, now what? Yep. Uh, Keep so- your hands, step for your hands. You know, you lose your gross motor skills or your fine motor skills when you're very cold. So you want to be able to keep those, your hands warm in case you need to use them to fix things and use your equipment and your gear. And it's, it, there's peace of mind in thinking these kind of things through. I mean, it's not like you have to drive a moving van everywhere because you brought so many things with you to just to, to be absolutely prepared. Just a few little heads up things can make all the difference in the world. And especially if you have other people depending on you, that can make a world of difference in your own peace of mind because you can be confident yeah. like Ernest Shackleton. Yeah. And don't don't. Yeah, it's going to take up a little space in your vehicle. I had a really hard time convincing my son to keep that in there because he's all about racing and having the vehicle not be weighed down and heavy till one night on the way home. He had to stop because there were three mountain lions in the road just standing there looking at him. So I said, look, if you were to have a flat tire or breakdown, do you want to get out and start walking around out here? No, that convinced him. Okay, Suzanne, thank you so much. Have yourself a wonderful day. We'll talk again soon. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Bye-bye. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. 
All right, I'm going to open up the phones here, 801-331-8113. If there's anything you've been sitting on for a couple of days and thought, man, I've been wanting to get this off my chest or I wanted to make sure that uh, Hyde was uh, was put in his place, here's your chance to do it. Again, 801-331-8113. Ah, oh, there's so much going on here. Where to go next? I, here's a great article that I found today by Steve Saylor. This is published on TakiMag, T-A-K-I-Mag.com. And it talks about something that I think I may have touched on a couple of days ago. But um, look, I don't see a lot of movies. I I just Hollywood just doesn't have that much to offer me. So if you're thinking, well, aren't you hoity toity? It's it's really it's just look so many times it's just loud noises, you know, and and confusing blurs of action that uh, are, are so mind blowing that I guess I am. I'm getting too old for it. But. I'll confess, I love horsepower i really do and when i see that there's a movie out there uh, what is it uh, ferrari versus uh, or no ford versus ferrari i want to see it i want to check it out because it seems like it seems like my cup of tea but see there's a problem and apparently it's that uh, um well, it's it's just such it's such a masculine movie it's it's about uh, white men primarily and their, their positions of privilege and how they were building these 218-mile-an-hour cars and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, in case you hadn't noticed, Hollywood really kind of puts a lot of value lately on being woke. And that's why you have these, uh, look, I'm empowered, you know, kind of movies like Captain Marvel with her Karen haircut. May I speak to the manager, please? She's going to go full Captain Marvel on us if she doesn't. So... All the woke Hollywood movies, and, and I guess the most recent one that I've heard of is Charlie's Angels. Now, look, I grew up, <laughs> I grew up in the 1970s. I remember Charlie's Angels. I remember Charlie's Angels from a time where I was too young to understand why it was so fun to look at them. But uh, you know, they they were a huge hit, and you you know, people jokingly even then called it Jiggle TV. They were making fun of Hollywood. Yeah, you're just putting these pretty ladies out there, and you know, having them bounce around on the screen and whatnot. I'm not saying it was the greatest television show, but at least they didn't try to pretend to be, you know, some kind of a morality play. It was it was eye candy with a crime story, a detective story written into it. And then there was a a redo, you know, since Hollywood likes to do a lot of rehashes of various uh, shows, they redid Charlie's Angels a few years ago. And and it was loud noises and incredible stunts and all this stuff that, uh, you know, still stayed fairly true to the the original vision of what the TV show was. Well, apparently in our woke times, that's not good enough. Now, Charlie's Angels has to be redone, but this time with a stronger, more feminist slant. And, and I, I know I'm getting myself in trouble. I'm probably just coming off like this grumpy old white guy who yells at clouds. Yeah, get out of my yard. But you have these 120-pound little waifs throwing 240 pound muscle men who apparently look like they could handle themselves you know they're being beaten up and and just thrown around by these these ladies because this is a tale of empowerment and and charlie in charlie's angels is no longer the the hidden voice you know done by john forsyth it's a woman and and it's so woke and it's so empowering and look anything girls can do anything guys can do girls can do better 
I mean, it makes me think of the Babylon Babylon B headline I saw not too long ago. NASA announced that it's going to do uh, it's going to do all new female, all female fake news landings because it's that important that these things be inclusive. Right. Sorry, I should have had a rim shot, you know, lined up and ready to go there. But Charlie's Angels is dying at the box office. It's circling the drain. And in the meantime, these films, which are not examples of intersectional diversity, like Once Upon a Time in Hollywood or Joker or The Irishman or Ford v. Ferrari, they're killing it. They are just owning the box office. And and the funny thing about it, this is pointed out by Steve Saylor. He says they keep turning out to be period pieces about straight white men made for straight white men by straight white men. Wow. (laughs) Now, he says reliable Matt Damon plays Texas race car impresario Carol Shelby, one of the more glamorous names I recall from my 1968-1970 car craze years. Again, this is Steve Saylor speaking. And Christian Bale is inspired as Shelby's hot-headed English test driver, Ken Miles. While sizable opening weekend audiences gave this buddy picture an A-plus cinema score grade, presidential candidate Michael Bloomberg's media empire was incensed by it. And Hannah Elliott complained in Bloomberg that the hit film dared to lack the obligatory, today's obligatory diversity inclusion equity. DIE is the uh, acronym for that. Quote, What I saw is a devastating picture of the lack of diversity that permeated the industry in the 1960s because Ford v. Ferrari shows a generation best left dead and gone. Wow. Would you like a saucer of milk with that? Meow. She goes on. Picture this. Men dominate the screen for 98% of the time by my unofficial count. They are in the executive suites at Ford and Ferrari, in the workshops and garages in Venice, at the track out at Willow Springs Raceway. And when I say men, I mean straight, white men. And Steve Saylor says, well, yeah, the Ford that went 218 miles an hour way back in 1965 was built by white, straight men. Guilty as charged. Hannah then goes on to say the critique I heard most often about Once Upon a Time in Hollywood could easily apply here. This is a film celebrating those nostalgic golden days when white men ruled. End quote. And as Steve Saylor says, because being compared to the Elysian Once Upon a Time in Hollywood isn't actually the worst thing somebody can say about a movie. Now, Ford v. Ferrari is largely the true story of the corporate rivalry to win the 24 hours of Le Mans auto race during the peak America years of 1963 to 1966. The film's concept had been in and out of development, uh, well, in and out of development hell for decades, with names like Tom Cruise and Brad Pitt attached over the years. While Hollywood titans deliver tedious speeches at the Oscars about how much they care about social justice, the truth is that the best movies usually get made by guys who love fast cars, big explosions, and beautiful women. Thus, the film industry has made countless auto racing movies over the generations, even if the genre tends to be more hit or miss with fans than with the car-crazed stars and directors. For example, the Ford v. Ferrari screenplay borrows some of its literary symbolism, about redlining from one of Howard, one of the great Howard Hawks' last movies, his not-so-great 1965 racing film Redline 7000. Although moviegoers immediately forgot Redline 7000, directors such as Quentin Tarantino have been kicking around for years 
the challenge of how to make a good Hoxian movie about a team of real men brawling and eventually uniting to go fast. With one cool gal, in this case, Katrona Balf is Mrs. Miles to bravely urge her man on. He says the challenge of delivering a Ford V Ferrari worthy of Hawks has finally been met by veteran director James Mangold. This is the same guy who made the Johnny Cash biopic Walk the Line and the proto-Joker comic book drama Logan from a screenplay by the Butterworth brothers. Ford v. Ferrari is to Red Line 7000 what the entertaining Soderbergh Clooney Ocean's Eleven is to Sinatra's Sleepy Ocean's Eleven. Now there's more about this. I'll come back to it in a few moments. We're coming up fast on the break. But, look, I'm a guy who loves cars. And if you want to get me to watch a movie, I mean, you know, I did sit down and watch The Notebook once with, with my wife. And it's, uh, it, you know, it's a chick flick. I watched it. It was sweet. But my heart really will always be where there is gunplay and there are explosions and revving engines and, and maybe some really good flight sequences as well. Am I supposed to apologize for that? And should Hollywood have to apologize that they haven't uh, remembered to revise everything that came before us as wrong and evil? How self-important do you have to be to be offended by the thought that everything that came before you was wrong? Trusted voices of truth and insight. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde, 801-331-8113. Please tell me I'm not the only guy who resonates with uh, the kind of movies that uh, maybe don't try especially hard to, to get that intersectional diversity. Okay. It's, it's just, uh, part of it is I don't like being preached to. And the second thing is I don't like being force fed while I'm in the act of being preached to. So, you know, I like movies that actually are entertaining, that take me places and sometimes maybe shed some insight or or help to uh, dramatize something that actually happened. Case in point, we're talking about the movie uh, Ford v. Ferrari. Now, this was based on real life events. And I love it when a good period piece like this is brought to life in a way that, that gives you a glimpse of what it was like, what, to, you know, the, the clothing, the hairstyles, the, the, just the general vibe. Another one that I saw recently that, uh, that did a marvelous job of this, although it had, it had its own little special social justice moments, The World's Fastest Indian with Anthony Hopkins. Brilliant show about a guy who built up this uh, 1920s model Indian motorcycle to set a world land speed record of over 200 miles an hour. And you know what? He did it on the Utah Salt Flats. Now, he had to get here from New Zealand and had to go through a lot of things. And, yeah, there was a there was a little, uh, you know, a little nod to the transgender community with a hotel desk clerk that he meets who looked surprisingly masculine. And then you find out, oh, well, it's because uh, there's a reason for that. But it was it wasn't, you know, bullhorn shouted in your face kind of obvious and and the historical aspects of the story were the, the movie was quite true to it and it made for a fascinating tale it was it was a fun thing to watch 
And Anthony Hopkins, for what it's worth, is a pretty darn good actor, even if I'm the only one who thinks that. But speaking of this movie, Steve Saylor has written a piece about Ford v. Ferrari and how Hollywood is offended. Well, this is just a movie celebrating white men, made by white men, and about white men, and oh my goodness. Because are we supposed to pretend that somewhere in the course of history, white men didn't exist or didn't do things like build 218 mile an hour performance cars like this? Just asking. I mean, are we really supposed to renounce the reality of everything that came before us? And that's not to suggest that everything that came before us was right, right? You know, I mean, Jim Crow came before most of us. I'm not saying it was right, but we ought to be able to honestly acknowledge, yeah, that was that was a part of the American experience at one time. So was slavery. Well, so was chivalry. So was religious respect. You know, as a general attitude when people were out in public. Not a fan of political correctness. Maybe maybe you noticed. Steve Saylor says the Ford Ferrari rivalry in this movie grew out of the post-war American desire not just to win the big one and put a chicken in every pot and a car in every garage, but also to be competitive with the old world in the more glamorous corners of culture. For example, in 1958, Texas pianist Van Cliburn won the Tchaikovsky competition in Moscow, from which he came home to a ticker tape parade on Broadway. The next year... Fellow Texan Carol Shelby drove an English Aston Martin to victory at Le Mans. Shelby then retired from driving due to his health, leading to a heart transplant in 1990, after which he lived to age 89 and passed away in 2012. He launched a rather Trump-like career of putting the Shelby name on fast cars and getting the Shelby name in glossy magazines, whether for his magnificent machines or for his incessant lawsuits. Meanwhile, the late Ford executive, Lee Iacocca, played in this movie, by the way, by John Bernthal, was trying to make the Ford image less fuddy-duddy with the upcoming generation of privileged baby boomers by launching the Mustang semi-sports car and by persuading his boss, Henry Ford II, to purchase Ferrari, which won the Le Mans sports car race from 1960 to 1965. Steppenwolf playwright Tracy Letts has the most fun as Ford II, the son of Edsel and grandson of the great Henry Ford, a big man who doesn't have to censor his emotions because his name is on the factory. But Enzo Ferrari wouldn't cede final say over racing to Ford, so Ferrari called off the deal. Insulted, Henry the Deuce vowed to bury Enzo at the finish line at Le Mans, but could the giant American corporation that had invented the moving assembly line in 1913 match the handmade nimbleness of the most legendary Italian performance mark? Mid-century American capitalist culture was, as, was great at bigness, but would Ford beat Ferrari at building cars as works of art? Well, this is where Mr. Ford hired the maverick, Shelby, to optimize the Ford GT40 supercar to win Le Mans for him. The name, by the way, stands for Grand Touring and the number for the height of the car in inches. Back then, everyone assumed that the vehicles of the future would be ever lower. But th that led to no end of office politics as Shelby and his brusque driver, Miles, clashed with the Ford Motor Company's organization men, such as the movie's designated villain, executive Leo Beebe, played unctuously by Josh Lucas. The script offers some sharp insights into how bureaucracies naturally try to smother innovation. Now, oddly enough, Bale had previously been slated to play Enzo Ferrari in Michael Mann's proposed Ferrari biopic. 
but he dropped out. Why? Because he didn't want to fatten up so much. In Ford v. Ferrari, Bale is in his skinny live wire mode, like in his Oscar role in The Fighter. It takes audiences a while to work out his character's thick Birmingham accent, but eventually they grow fond of his prickly personality. Steve Saylor says his wife thought she'd be bored by a racing film, but she liked how Bale talked to his car while driving, turning it into a relationship movie. Saylor says if you enjoy loud cars, go vroom noises, see it in a theater with good speakers. If you don't, wait till you can watch it at home with closed captions to help you follow the often technical dialogue shouted over the roar of a 425-horsepower V8. Now, he says, strikingly, the filmmakers avoided almost all concessions to contemporary social justice fetishes. The only adjustment was to drop all mention of Shelby's lurid love life. He was married seven times and to concentrate solely on Miles' decorous marriage. The movie's full of talk of redlining, for instance, but it's about the risk of burning out the engine by revving it over 7,000 RPM, not about discriminatory FHA loans. No non-white or non-male characters were concocted to make the history more palatable to today's anti-white male prejudices. In summary, Steve Saylor says, White men, straight white men, just keep ruining things for everybody else by having more talent and getting more done. He said it, not me. You know, if you want to turn the pitchforks that way. I'm still marveling at the idea that people are, are so seriously offended over the idea that, uh, yeah, this is a celebration of what uh, what was being done. And, and for better or for worse, at that time, men ran the world. You know, it wasn't that there were no women in the workplace, but I don't know. We're supposed to set aside, you know, what actually happened in favor of, well, this needs to be revised. I mean, it seriously makes me speculate that we are going to see a point in time. I was telling this to my son the other day. There's going to come a day where Donald Trump will not be the president. And I'm not making any guesses as to how that's going to happen. Oh, he's going to be impeached or, you know, he's going to leave office. He'll resign or he'll get voted out. I don't have any idea. I just know that as time goes on, eventually he's not going to be the president. His presidency will come to an end. And I just wonder if this politically correct mindset, this this woke mindset, is going to force the rewriting of American history between 2015, say, and whenever his uh, his term ends, be it next year or be it, you know, in another four years. Are we going to have to pretend that never happened? Just like, you know, some buildings don't have a 13th floor. Because of superstition, are we going to have to rewrite history so as to pretend that, well, no, he never really was elected? Because I get the sense that there are people who are actively working on this. And and let me just be really clear. I get the sense that the people who are actively working on revising history in, in negating or repudiating the 2016 election. I think once they get their hands on power. Once they feel the pendulum has safely swung back their way enough, I think they are the kind of people who would be capable of whatever the, the we would call the equivalent of Mao's great leap forward. Remember, he got rid of a lot of history, too. People were expected to rid themselves of all the reminders of former decadence 
Get rid of your furniture. Get rid of your clothes. We are all equals now. He even had a little red book that people could carry around so they could know where they stood at all times. Because someone was planning their lives for them. Now, that's not something that I'm exactly looking forward to, but I'm saying I think it's within the realm of possibility, given how irrational and how control-driven some of these folks appear to have been for, oh, say, I don't know, the last three years or so. What are your thoughts? 801-331-8113. You don't have to agree with me if you want to put me in my place. Here's your chance. We'll be back after these messages. Hey, once again, thanks for listening to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. All the different articles that come up in the course of, uh, of this hour or any hour of this program, I post in the show notes, and you can check those out for yourself. You just go to lovingliberty.net. You'll find a wonderful button there that will connect you to our podcast's archive, and then you just have to pull up Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. It's very, very simple. Click on the, the date of the show that you're looking for. And you will find there some copious show notes. Okay, they're not exactly copious, but they will have links to the various articles that are covered. And I try to find stuff that's hopefully interesting and maybe just a little bit off the beaten path. Speaking of which, got a couple of things here I wanted to bring up, and and they're kind of related. I want to talk about bringing back the family dinner. But before we do that, you've probably heard of intermittent fasting. Some people like to, you know, just kind of snidely dismiss it as, well, you're talking about skipping breakfast. Big deal. But this is something that I have actually put to the test and find there is something to it. There is something to going for a period of time without taking food into your body. Now, we're talking about an intermittent fasting. It's like a 16-hour window in which you don't eat. You can drink as much water as you want. That's good for your body. But you don't take in any nourishment, not even one calorie, not even a breath mint. And what it does is it helps your body start to regulate all of its uh, digestive functions and, you know, the way it it uh, it processes the nutrients and so forth. Uh, But there's there's an added benefit. And look, you can tell by my layman's terms, I am not a scientician or dietitian for that matter. But there's something to be said for it helps to establish a sense of self-control. If you can go for 16 hours without putting food in your face, you find that you have more strength to to resist. Maybe I don't really need that bowl of ice cream or to to resist the things that are, you know, markedly unhealthy for you. And I'm just sharing this with you from the standpoint. I'm not telling you something you really should give it a try. You need to do it yourself. I just have found it personally beneficial. And so when I saw this article about dopamine fasting, I thought maybe I'll take a closer look at this too. A dopamine fast is intended to reboot your brain and make you appreciate everyday pleasures more. Now the question is, is there science to back it up? Okay, does, does science need to back it up for it to have legitimate value to people? 
Here's what here's what a dopamine fast looks like. The article here is in uh, this is from the BBC. And it says when James Sinka starts his dopamine fast, he cuts himself off from as many external stimuli as possible. So he stops eating, instead drinking only water to stay hydrated. So see, if you're doing intermittent fasting, you're already part way there. But listen to this. To stop the dopamine, he ignores his phone, laptop, screen, and other tech devices. In fact, he'll try and avoid interacting with people as much as possible. Now, I hear some of you going, okay, go on. (laughs) I'm liking this. Some of my more introverted friends are all perking up here. That includes making eye contact, by the way. Don't interact with people. Don't drink or I mean, don't uh, take in calories. Don't take in food. Just drink water. Stay away from your phone. Stay away from your laptop. Stay away from your television. And this uh, Silicon Valley based technology entrepreneur, James Sinka, says, I'm lucky to have extremely supportive friends, family and partners. And I tell them all ahead of time, I'm booking 17 November for a dopamine fast. I'm sorry, you won't hear from me. It's not that I don't love you. It's just that I have to do this thing for myself. Originally, that was a little ridiculous, but now they're used to it. They'll laugh it off and get it. Now, this 24-year-old is one of a growing number of people in the tech hub adopting dopamine fasting. And the article says it's the latest fad to emerge in the future-facing region known for embracing new wellness initiatives. But they ask the question here, is, it, is a dopamine fast just rebranded form of, of some kind of ancient meditation? And is there any science to back it up? I guess in a nutshell, here's what happens. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter or chemical brain messenger linked to how we feel motivation to do things. In fact, it's often been incorrectly called the pleasure chemical. Dopamine release can be triggered by a range of external stimuli, especially unexpected salient events. That's according to Joshua Burke, a professor of neurology and psychiatry at the University of California, San Francisco. That could range from sudden, unpleasant, loud noises to stimuli that, through prior experience, have become associated with reward. Proponents of dopamine fasting believe that we have become overstimulated by quick hits of dopamine from things like social media, technology, and food. And they say that by deliberately avoiding these common stimulants, which we see as pleasurable activities, we can decrease the amount of dopamine in our brain. Then after the fast, when we re-engage with these stimulants, we enjoy them more and our lives feel better. Very interesting stuff. I think I have heard of uh, therapists doing something similar to this with people who are um, in recovery from pornography addiction. So if they if they stay away from that stimulant that releases dopamine, looking at those images, it sends it, it tends to do a kind of reset on their brain. It takes time, but the same thing apparently works. In, in helping people gain control of, uh, you know, other vices or other things that can be taken to extremes. Maybe it's overeating. Maybe it's watching too much television, playing video games or things like that. Uh, trying to get too many likes on Facebook. That, believe it or not, that stimulates the uh, reward center in your brain. Oh, they like me. They really like me. Fascinating stuff. I'll link the article in the show notes. You can check it out and make up your own mind. But I do believe one of the things that uh, I, I believe one of the purposes for which we have life 
is to gain self-mastery. Now, that doesn't mean, you know, self-deprivation and living the, you know, this austere life. You don't have to be like the Spartans. But I'll be very curious to see if this dopamine fasting doesn't bear some kind of fruit. I think there's potential. May even have to give it a try. So if I'm hard to reach one of these days, that might be the reason. All right, let's go to the phone. 801-331-8113. Hi, welcome to Loving Liberty. Brian, Sam calling. Hello, Sam. I've done fasting before, but not for that reason. Um, I've done a three-day fast. That's the longest one I've done. Um, and what it seems to do for me is, and you got to psych yourself up to do it because, you you know, first of all, you got to realize that you're not going to starve. You can live, uh, you can actually live up to about two weeks without anything to eat. So you're not going to starve. It's the water you want to keep consuming. But you'll actually feel better after a while because you're giving your digestive system a rest and your body can spend more time uh, repairing other stuff. Yeah. Well, I, like I say, I'm I'm curious enough about it. I think I might have to give it a try. Look, just between you and me, days when I have forgotten my cell phone, I go somewhere and I realize, oh, I don't have my phone. In the back of my mind, there's a part of me going, going to have some peace of mind today. <laughs> I, yeah, I'm see, actually enjoying like the peace and quiet. <laughs> yeah, we're like that with food, just like anything else. Now, I don't have that problem with the cell phone, but... Uh, but we are like that with food and so many other habits that we get into. But food particularly, you know, the problem is we never give our digestive system a rest. And then uh, on top of that, we, you know, our food supply, with the way our food supply is now, with so much high fructose corn syrup and everything else in the food supply, everybody gets super obese because they're not getting well nourished, you know. And actually what really would help is if, uh, is uh, once people fast, then go back in and start identifying foods that might disagree with you. If you have a situation where you have a, you know, where you know there's something that your body doesn't tolerate well, you keep a food diary and you can kind of keep track of what works for you and what don't. And you might be surprised. Some people are going to be different, you know. But uh, but uh, what we really need to do is start going back to, if we're going to eat, go back to organic. But good luck doing that because our food supply is proliferated with corporate food. Yeah, and, and organic is expensive, at least for those who, who take the pains to, to seek out organic food. I know. You'd think it'd be the other way around because they, right. they have to put less stuff on it to make it organic than they do when they grow it the other way. But, oh well. I have, I have a theory about why they, why they don't charge more for the addictive food. And that's because it's addictive. I think it's, you know, there you go. it's habit forming yeah, okay, and eh, they'll come back. You know they'll be yeah, back. Yeah, got to get people hooked just like cigarette smoking or anything else. Keep them hooked some way. Well, now I'm going to go consider something to throw on my barbecue. Speaking of addictions, ha, here we go. There you go. <laughs> That's all I got, Brian. Sam, thanks so much for the call. Hey, and thank you, everyone, for tuning in today to Loving Liberty. Stick around. My friend Kate Daly is on the way next on the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Welcome to the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 